If you would, take your copy of God's Word and open to James. We are in the first chapter. This will be our fourth sermon in the series as we're looking at James and bringing out here a faith that works. Uh, James is a very practical book, um, and uh, it is one in which there is much to learn and much to apply. It is not a book of abstract, theological, metaphysical type things, though those things are sometimes very important for us to define theology, to define our doctrine, to understand Christ. James is a pastor, if we remember. James is a pastor. He was the early pastor of the church of Jerusalem. His church has come under persecution, and Pastor James is writing to his struggling church, and he is helping them to apply their Christian faith to their difficult lives. And it's good for us as well. We are not scattered. We are not persecuted in the same sense. But we still all struggle often to live out our faith, don't we? We often see holes. We often see gaps. We often pray, you know, Lord, would you show this to us? Would you help us to see that? And that's what the Scripture does for us. So if you have your scripture open to James, we will begin looking at, at verses 9 through 12, or not, verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1. Let me read this for you. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also the rich man may fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who who love him. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would still our hearts. You would still our minds. Father, help us to focus on your word. Lord, we pray and ask that your spirit would fill us, that your word would fill us. Father, that you would expose in our lives where these truths hit. Father, that you would help us to have your perspective on life, your perspective on money, your perspective on enduring trials. Father, we pray and ask that you would grow our faith. Father, we pray for those who are unsure about their faith. Father, would you today show them the importance and the necessity of a life built upon the faith in Jesus Christ. Be with us now, Lord, as we seek to learn you, to know of you, to apply your word to our lives. Father, I pray that you help me to communicate these truths in a way that is fitting. But most of all, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Does anybody, is anybody familiar with the concept, the idea of a paradox? And Doug Reed up there told me it's a pair of doctors. I told you I was going to work that in. No, a paradox. The idea of paradox. The paradox is a way in which you can teach a truth kind of ironically. Uh, Webster Dictionary defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet it is perhaps true. There are many paradoxes. For instance, giving is receiving. Do you see how that's kind of a funny truth? If you give, how are you receiving? Well, we, we know that it's true, right? When we give, we receive because our hearts are glad for the giving. We bring, it brings joy to us when we bring joy to others. It's the idea of a paradox. Paradox was actually a very common way in the Roman world that the, the Greek kind of thought that they would teach. They would they would shroud these mysteries, these deep thoughts in these little statements. And in fact, in the scriptures, we see many different types of paradox. Think about this. The scripture tells us that the weak are strong. It tells us that the empty are full, that the slave is free, that the cursed are blessed, that death brings life. There are many paradoxes. In the scriptures. It's almost as though God uses these opposite types of statements to make us think, to get our gears going, to help drive these truths into us. Today in this text, there are three paradoxes that we will encounter. There are three paradoxes in this text. The first is the poor rich. The poor are rich. The second is that the rich are poor. And the third is that there can be eternal riches. Eternal riches. Now, I think James uses this as a way to, to teach his hearers. We have to remember that back up a little bit and think about what we're talking about. This whole section here, the beginning of James, he goes right into the trials that his church is facing. They are under persecution. They've been dispersed. It is tough times. The first thing that we saw is we looked at the idea that he writes about a faith that seeks maturity, a faith that in struggles, a faith that in trials seeks maturity, that knows that God is working in such a way that it can embrace trials and have joy in trials. That's kind of a paradox, right? Joy in trials. We don't want to have joy in trials. We want to be angry in trials. We want to suffer in trials. We want to be bitter in trials. But James says that we should have a faith that seeks maturity, a faith that seeks joy in trials. The second that we looked at last week is a faith that seeks wisdom. That when we are undergoing trials, when we are undergoing difficulties, when we don't know, instead of looking to Google as our source of wisdom, Instead of looking to the world as our source of wisdom, we pray and we ask God for His wisdom. The one who knows all things. The one who has created all things. The one who is over all things. Why would we not go there first? So, a faith that seeks wisdom. And today, I want us to look at a faith that keeps God's perspective. A faith that keeps the right perspective under trials. 
A faith that looks to, at the things that God looks at. And that's really what our text is about. So look with me. The first paradox that we see here is the poor rich. The poor rich in verse 9. James uh, speaks to the poor here. He says, let the lowly brother, some of your translations might say the poor brother. That's, that's what the idea is here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And it's a play on words. Let the one who is low boast because he is high. Let the one who is low boast because he is high. And what James is getting here is that though you may have nothing materially in this world, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a rich man. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are a rich woman. You see, nothing in this world measures or compares to that of knowing Christ, to that of that which will come. Let's, let's think about this. Um, if, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are an heir to a vast fortune. Think about that. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter what you drive or if you can drive. Knowing Christ changes our perspective, doesn't it? It's not a worldly perspective. It is God's perspective. And that's what James writes here to these struggling Christians, many of which we assume are probably very poor. They have been ran out of Jerusalem. They are struggling. They are under persecution. They do not have the means. And James writes and says, remember in your struggles. Remember in in your every moment, hand-to-mouth struggles. You are a rich person in Jesus Christ. Boast, exalt in what you have in Jesus. Don't be overcome by what you don't have. In, in Scripture, we see this all over. Paul, uh, Paul in, in uh, Ephesians 2 has a, gives us a picture of a believer who is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Remember that in your struggles, James would say. In Corinthians Um, Paul writes and says, all things belong to you, whether in the world or life or death or present things to come. This is an eternal perspective. God of the universe, if you know him and if you love him, we have promises throughout scripture that he will take care of us. We have the example of Christ in the Lord's Prayer, saying, give us this day our daily bread. Father, you will provide for us the thing that we need today. The lowly brother, the poor brother, lives in that reality. And James encourages him here to, to, to boast in that. Now, doesn't that sound funny? Because so much of Scripture says, do not boast, do not glory, do not boast in yourselves. Right? We know of Paul. Paul uses this word negatively. The Corinthians were boasting wrongly in themselves. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? All things that we have are a gift of God. And so boasting often in Scripture is a negative thing. We don't go around saying, I am so smart. You know, God, God blessed me because I'm good looking. Okay? Sometimes we get that mindset. 
I did all of this. Scripture reminds us not to boast like that. Scripture reminds us, how did you do what you did? Who gave you the gifts? Who gave you the talents? Who gave you the abilities and the desires? Who provided you with opportunities? Who guided your every move, your hand? God did. And so we be careful not to boast in ourselves. But Scripture does say that we are allowed to boast in something. What is that? In God, in Christ. We are to boast in the glory of God. We are to boast in what Christ has done for us. Let me make some application to this, to the idea of the poor rich. The first is, is that from our mindset so often we would not see being poor as an advantage, would we? I want to tell you, there are brothers and sisters in this world that are poor, that are extremely rich. Having God's perspective on such a thing does not allow us to judge them, to condemn them, to... um, this happens in missions sometimes. We will, you'll go somewhere or you'll see a group somewhere and they will go across the world where we find out that not everybody lives like Americans and they will come back heartbroken because of the poor people. They will miss so often the blessings that these people have that they, they live a life where they don't understand the luxuries that we have and they don't desire them. They are blessed uh, let, me, let me give you an example here. Haitian Christians are some of the poorest people in the world. Uh, Haiti is an overpopulated, under-resourced island. Okay? There's too many people. There's not enough natural resources. The land is barren. There's not much there. You take on top of that government issues. You take on top of that, um, you know, hurricanes whipped through there, the earthquake that they had in 2010. Haiti is one of the poorest places on earth. The average per capita income of Haiti, $480 a year. $480 a year. The typical worker in Haiti only makes $2.75 a day. They are overworked, They are abused. Many of the employers do not keep to the standards that the government has issued on how to pay and how to work employees, and the people won't speak up. Do you know why? Unemployment is over 70%. And so they'll do anything to keep that job. And yet, Haitian believers, most of them, go to worship every morning. Every morning, they wake up and they go to their little churches and they sing praises to God and the pastor gives them a daily devotional and they pray together every morning. How dare we look at them and say, oh, you poor people, it must be so miserable. They would look at us. In fact, I have a Haitian friend. He came to America and I asked him, you know, what's the difference? What do you, what do you think? We're talking about church. And he said, in America, people don't pray because they have everything. He said, in Haiti, we pray for everything because we don't have it. And he said, because of that, people in America, they don't know how to thank God. 
That's convicting, isn't it? The poor rich. The poor man, boast in your exaltation. Boast in your high place. Boast in the fact that you are dependent upon God, that God is growing your faith every day through every meal, through every encounter. I I read from a missionary today who's in Papua New Guinea, and he said, returning back to the country reminds us of of the urgency of prayer. He said, we pray every meal. Lord, thank you for this meal. Please Please strengthen us and do not allow us to get sick from this mill. Every time that they travel, Lord, the the roads are dangerous here. People die every day in our town. They are crowded. People don't drive correctly. There are no laws. Protect us as we travel. That changes your perspective, doesn't it? It changes your perspective. So, the poor are often rich in Christ. The poor man can be a rich man in Christ. Second point, the paradox here of the rich poor. The rich poor, the rich who are poor. Look at verse 10. And the rich man in his humiliation. So the poor man is to boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises, and with its scorching heat, it withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. So also, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, I will tell you on the onset, this is kind of a a thorny passage to interpret, because the question here is, is the rich man, in James' opinion here as he writing, is this a believer or is this an unbeliever? And commentators are pretty much split between the two. And so the argument for the unbeliever is the fact that it doesn't say unbeliever. In many passages in James, the rich are spoken of negatively. They are the ones oppressing the poor. And so if that is what James has in mind here, then basically James is writing to the poor believer, exalt in Christ, exalt in your high place, exalt that you are rich in Christ. And for you rich unbelievers, exalt in the fact that you're going to die soon and you will have nothing. That's all that you can exalt in. And, and, And so it's a contrast but I think there's more strength to understanding this that, that James is actually speaking to the wealthier believers that have been scattered as well. And the reason is, is that it seems to fit within the context here of the testing and the trials. There are, there are wealthy people in the congregation in which James is writing to. We know this because in, in chapter 2, verse 2, he mentions the rich men that are coming into the assembly. So there are rich men into the, in the body. And in verse four, chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, is, is a passage that we're all familiar with, where James writes and talks about the, the businessman in the church and how he's saying, today I will go here and today, tomorrow I will go there. And I've got my whole life mapped out. And James writes and says, don't say that, but say if God wills. And so it, it seems 
the argument, the idea to say that there is no one rich in the church, there is no good rich people in James's view, seems to be blown out of the water by those two passages. And again, I think the context here, it seems fitting that James is speaking and comparing the rich man and the poor man. And so the poor man is to exalt in his high place in Christ, and the rich is to exalt in the humiliation that he receives by taking on Christ. And to know, to put in perspective, that all of his riches, all of his things, will one day not matter. All that matters eternally is our riches in Christ. Is our riches riches in Christ. And so the poor man, for the poor man, he is tempted by his poverty. He's tempted to devote himself to the pursuit of wealth. Or he may be tempted to feel neglected by God because, God, why did you not give me what you gave him? We've never prayed that prayer, have we? God, why did you bless him and not me? Okay? The, the rich man, however, is tempted to glory in his wealth. Look how God's blessed me. Look, look, look what I have. I must be highly favored. He's also tempted to separate himself and to look down upon the poor man that is a brother in Christ neither of which is God's perspective on the situation. That's not how God sees it. Again, we're we're looking at this about a faith that seeks perspective. What is the perspective that we are to have about suffering and our wealth, our position, our economic status? The wealth does not put a rich man on a higher spiritual plane than a poor man. In fact, as we've already been convicted, there are many, many poor Christians who have spiritual depth and spiritual riches that we will never experience because of our comfort. That's a truth, isn't it? That's a truth. Now, when we read this and we read about the rich, if you're like me, often we think, well, that, that's just, you know, that's, that's the really rich people that they must be talking about, okay? You know, think of, uh, of Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, um, starting a rocket company out here. Uh, Warren Buffett, right? Rich guy. Uh, Bill Gates. We, we think of those types, right? We think of the extremely wealthy. Friends, we have to be careful to apply this text to us as well. Because compared to most of the world's standards, you are extremely rich. Many of you own a home, perhaps two homes. Okay? We got snowbirders returning. You guys brought the cold with you. I don't know where you came from, but it changed this week big time here. We have air conditioning. Most of the hottest places in the world. Hotter than Florida, believe it or not don't have the comfort of air conditioning. You have a bed to sleep on. You have a roof over your head that can withstand hurricane winds, we found out this past month. Do you realize that most of the world lives in shacks? We are rich. We truly are. 
We have to be careful as we read this text not to put ourselves in the poor, but to think of ourselves in the rich and to apply what it means here or else we're going to miss out on what James is writing to us. So I want to give us a few things that we can look at here to think about. How is it that we can apply verses 10 through 11? How can we glory in our humiliation? How can we take glory not in the things that we have or the pursuit of the things that we have or the blessings of stuff? But how is it that we can glory in our humiliation as James writes here? So the first thing I want to say is we can glory in the fact that God has opened our eyes to see the vanity of worldly wealth and status. We can open our eyes to see that the pursuit of stuff is empty, right? Um, there's always been lots of, uh, lots of TV shows about the rich and the famous, Right? And, and they will take you and they'll show you their yachts and they'll show you all the extravagant excess stuff. I've never watched the Kardashians, but I know who they are, unfortunately, because I live in the world. It seems like an empty life pursuit. God has opened our eyes. If you're a Christian, God has opened your eyes that the things that matter in this world are not stuff. The things that matter in this world is not money. And I hope that God has opened your eyes to that. I hope that you do not live in a way in which you think that money will satisfy your every need. That if you just get that one thing more, if you can just accomplish that one more goal, if you can get that next step, if you can be one step more powerful, you will find yourself needing and wanting more. It is a vain pursuit. So God has opened our eyes to this. Hopefully we are glorying in this fact. Hopefully we live our lives under that. That I don't need all the stuff in the world. I don't need to watch those shows and think, oh, I'm missing out because I don't have, (laughs) you know, (laughs) crazy stuff. Second, we can glory in the fact that God has shown us what true happiness is, what true honor is. Listen, listen to this from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord that practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. If we know the Lord, we can boast in the fact that we know what true happiness is. We know what true glory is. We know what true goodness is. It is to know the Lord. It is to see Him, to seek Him, to become closer to Him, to walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We can glory in the fact that our inheritance can never be taken away. James writes here and says, the rich man, he's gathered all this stuff. And you can gather a lot of stuff. We probably all have a lot of stuff. There's one thing I've learned about stuff. The more stuff you get, the more you've got to maintain your stuff. Like it's it's an endless, vicious cycle, isn't it? And so we can gather all of this stuff, but what's going to happen to it? I mean, we... We live in Florida. We know if you leave something that just sits outside, 
It doesn't matter what it is. The sun will destroy it. Over time, it will be destroyed. We've all heard the, we've all heard the phrase, you know, you've never seen uh, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. There actually is a picture of that on the internet, so now we can't say that. But we understand the concept, don't we? He who dies with the most toys still dies. And as James writes, it's like a flower and the heat comes. And the, it's actually the, the hot, dry winds. If anybody's ever been to California, the Santa Ana winds, they're nasty, aren't they? they it feels like in the evening, the oven door just opened and blows out at you. James says, that on your flowers is what your riches are like. They will not last. They will not endure. And you will, if that is your life, if that is your pursuit, if that is what you live for, you will die empty. You will die empty. But Scripture says we have an inheritance in Christ that we can glory in, an inheritance that will not be taken away. Psalm 49 talks about the negative. It talks about a rich man who congratulates himself, who's naming his lands after himself and thinks that his, his fame will endure forever. Psalm 49, 12 says, Man and his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that will perish. But on the flip side, 1 Peter 1, 4, 14, 1, 4 says, that we have in Christ an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiable, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. Okay, I didn't get a reaction out of that. Listen to this. What is our inheritance in Christ? What is it that we have to look forward to? Not an inheritance that fades. Not a name that people will forget. Not something marked on a building that one day will be torn down. But rather, we have an inheritance that is imperishable. It cannot die. It cannot end. Undefiled. It cannot be degraded. An inheritance that is unfading. It will always remain crisp and clear and just like that paint job before your car sat in the Florida sun for 10 years and kept for you in heaven. That is what we have to look forward to. James tells the poor that they are rich in Christ. He tells the rich that they are poor in their humiliation in Christ. And then third, the third paradox that we see here is that James just said that riches what? Fade. Riches fade away like the flower. Riches don't endure. But now he's going to give another, a third paradox here. He's going to say that there is an eternal richness. There is a richness that does not fade. See, that's the third paradox here is the eternally rich. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12 goes back to the opening theme of trials. And this is another reason why I think to the rich, he's talking about to the rich believer that they glory in their humiliation, that they glory in Christ, they glory in the thing in which the world says does not matter because they know they keep the perspective that this is what is most important. And so he writes here, you see this, this, this play back and forth between the trials and verse 12 almost kind of wraps this up. It, it keeps pulling back from what we see in verses 2. Uh, two through four and, and, and 
about asking for wisdom. Trial occurs in verses 2 and 12. Joy and blessing, they're synonymous here in verse 2 and verse 12. To persevere in verse 12 looks, goes back. It's the same word that's used in verses 3 and 4. The idea of standing the test in verse 12 is related to the testing that we see in verse 3. And so this plays out. This, this idea of you stay firm during this trial. Stay firm during this hard time. I know you're scattered. I know you're under persecution. I know things are hard. I know you don't know what to do. Ask for wisdom. Okay? Be, it, it, know that God is, is growing you as you go through this trial. And know, keep God's perspective on what really matters is what James writes. And then he wraps it up here about blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, under this trial in which you are undergoing, this trial that will bring you maturity, this trial where you need God's wisdom, this trial where you need to keep God's perspective. And he says, he says four truths here. First, both poverty and riches are tests of faith. Okay? Greed is not exclusive to the rich. You have to remember this. If you are poor in Christ, if you, 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 can, you can still be poor and overridden with greed. You just don't have a lot. But you can look and you can hope and you can think and your life can be built around, I want this! That's not how to endure. The second truth that we see here is that true blessing is not ex- exempt from trials. James doesn't ever write here and say, blessed are those who don't have to endure this. It is the trial that brings blessing. It is the trial. It is the difficulty. It is the various trials that James writes. We all undergo. We all experience. And I'm sure you are undergoing right now a trial in your life. Don't cry out to God and say, why did you give this to me? Don't neglect that God is working in your life through this. No, to persevere, to push forward, to keep your faith in Christ, to keep the right perspective. Because God will grow you, and it says that, that, there, is a, that there is a crown, there is a victory ahead for you. That's the third thing. Uh, the, the crown of life. God rewards those who persevere under trials. The idea here is like the Roman games, like the, the old style, the, uh, the, the wreath that they would put on the champions. That's, that's what the, the Greek word here is. It's not like, you know, big gold, I'm going to get more diamonds in my crown type thing. But the idea is a wreath, that God is going to crown you. God is going to, at the end of your trials, at the end of your suffering, those who persevere, those who keep God's perspective, those who look forward to what God will do, there is the crown of life. There is a crown that God will reward us. Poor person, those who do not have riches know that God will reward us. We claim to the promises of the riches in Christ that will come for us, of what eternity will be, that there is a reality beyond what we see right now, that we keep God's perspective. The last thing here that's very interesting is what it says the strength is to persevere under these trials. The strength. Um, you might think that it would say that, that the crown of life is for those who obey, or just for those who, to persevere. 
But it says it's to those who love Him. That's interesting, isn't it? What strengthens us to undergo trials? It's, it's, not, it's not just truth. Oh, I've got to get through this trial and then I'll be okay. It's not just duty. I'm supposed to love Jesus. But it's truly loving Christ. If we truly love Christ, if we truly love God, then we will seek to do His Word. We will seek His perspective even in the midst of a paradox. Right? Even when what looks right is wrong. Even when God says those who are poor are rich. We don't look upon that which is physical and the the poorness and say, I'm just lowly. God hasn't blessed me. He must not love me. No, we claim and we say, God, I am rich in you because I know Jesus Christ, because I know what is ahead of me, because I know your word and your promises. When we can live a life claiming God's paradoxes, the, the truths, even though they don't seem that way, that is a life that loves Christ one that is worthy of the crown. Let me, let me wrap this up here. Um, I, we put in landscaping a few months ago. Um, it survived the hurricane. But uh, Bob McCandless told me when he saw my house, he, he saw the, the water pump for the sprinkler system, and he said, oh, you've got a new hobby. And he's right, because that, that irrigation system, is it's something else. And so... <laughs> I'm waiting for a part for my pump, and my irrigation's been out. And in two days, my plants shriveled up that fast. So now I'm out there with the hose. In two days, because of the heat, all of your riches will one day be like that. Whatever it is that you take pride in, it's your stuff, it's your house, it's your car, maybe it's your toys. Maybe it's your accounts, your investments. Know this. They have limited value. What matters most is what you have in Christ. My friends, let me challenge you to this. Do you have, do you have the perspective that James is saying here? Do you see that all of life is a vapor? One day the reality is we will stand before Christ. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you confident that you know Jesus Christ? Are you confident that you have been saved? Friends, if you do not, I invite you, please, speak with me. Speak with someone. Perhaps you're a guest of someone. Understand, seek the Lord while He is near, while He may be found. If God's Spirit is saying to you right now, you need to get this right. You need to. Because you may end up like the rich unbeliever that we talked about. That all you have to look forward to is death and then judgment. I want you to know the promises of life. I want you to receive the crown. We're going to sing a song of invitation. And I want to challenge you. If you don't know Christ, please come forward. You can speak with me. Perhaps you have been thinking about this a long time and the Lord is telling you, today is the day that I need to make this happen. That I need to come to Christ. Come. Believers, if you heard this message, remember, we're not just the poor people. 
In many ways, we're the rich. Are you keeping God's perspective throughout your trial? Are you living in God's perspective in your life? Are you living for the things that truly matter? Or is your life only wrapped around that which is temporary? Pray to the Lord and and ask Him to judge your heart, to guide you in truth.